Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko, and Figle Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Armed groups increasingly use water as a weapon of war. South Sudan government lashes out at the United Nations. And South Africa's opposition accuses the ruling ANC of defending apartheid laws. In economics news, South Africa delays nuclear power expansion plans. And in sports news, South Africa's Mamelodi Sundowns prepares for FIFA Club World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. The United Nations Human Rights Body has appointed a commission of inquiry on Burundi tasked with investigating abuses in the country and ensuring justice for the victims. Hundreds of people have reportedly been killed since President Pien Kurunziza won a controversial third term in office in July. Opponents say that move violated the country's constitution as well as a deal that ended a civil war in 2005. Daniel Johnson reports. The three members of the Commission of Inquiry are Fatsa Wegaguz from Algeria, Reina Alapini-Gansu from Benin, and Françoise Hampson from the United Kingdom. A recent UN independent investigation in Burundi described what it called abundant evidence of gross human rights violations by the government, possibly amounting to crimes against humanity. In line with the Human Rights Council resolution in September, the new investigator's 12-month mandate will involve identifying alleged perpetrators of human rights violations. Prosecutors at the International Criminal Court will probe the trafficking of migrants out of Libya to see if there's evidence of war crimes. Chief Prosecutor for Tobin Suda says the office is planning to make Libya a priority in investigations in the coming year. Although Libya is not a party to the Rome Statute, which underpins the RCC, the United Nations Security Council unanimously mandated the tribunal to investigate abuses in the country in February 2011. Armed groups in the Central African Republic have been urged by the United Nations to stop fighting following clashes in Bria in the east of the country. More than 4,000 displaced civilians as well as local authorities and humanitarian organizations have taken refuge in the premises of the UN mission. Minuska, UN spokesperson Stefan Dujoric. The UN mission stresses that these armed groups will be held accountable for the violence, and particularly against the civilian population.
And HIV positive Malawian man who said he had sex with at least 100 girls and women in traditional cleansing rituals has been sentenced to two years in prison for harmful practices. Eric Aniva was arrested after revealing that he had unprotected sex with widows to purify them, a custom banned in Malawi. The charges under the Gender Equality Act involved the ritual of sex with widows as none of the younger girls testified. And finally, American artist Dante Terrell Smith, commonly known as Mars Dev, has left the Oatambo International Airport in Johannesburg on a valid American passport after apologizing to the South African government for contravening immigration laws. Smith was arrested earlier this year after attempting to leave South Africa with a world passport which the country does not recognize. Charges against him will be withdrawn but he has been declared a personal non grata south africa's home affairs director general mkuseli apleni based on his apology and the confirmation that he will depart on the 22nd november 2016 using a valid passport from us the department will withdraw the charges against him on friday 25th November 2016 in his absence. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. From Syria to Iraq and Gaza, water services are being deliberately attacked or used as leverage in negotiations members of the UN Security Council heard on Tuesday. The Council examined the role of water as a driver of conflict and the need to protect this essential resource in the context of war. Depriving people of access to water or using water as a method of war is a violation of international humanitarian law. Jocelyn Sambira has more. A single bomb blast can damage a pipe or substation, which in turn can result in water supplies being cut off for weeks. In situations of armed conflict, often technical staff are killed or forced to flee, resulting in a long-term deterioration of water and other essential services. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has more. Airstrikes against water and electrical facilities in Syria and the contamination of groundwater resources in Gaza are further examples of the negative impact of armed conflict on water. We have also seen warring parties seek to control dams and dikes, controlling strategic dams on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, has been at the center of military operations carried out by ISIL in Syria and in Iraq. None of us can live without water, said Christine Burley, vice president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC. People need water to drink, to grow food, to cook, and to stay clean. And it's directly linked to public health, she noted. Polluted drinking water or insufficient water for washing causes causes people to get ill. This puts additional strain on health facilities and medical personnel, already struggling to cope with high demand and limited capacity. 
ICRC provides safe and clean water for populations affected by conflict and violence in over 80 countries. Humanitarian organizations like the ICRC have been working together with local actors to protect water resources and installations, said Danilo Turk, chairman of the high-level panel on water and peace. However, these efforts may not be enough, he added. They may require additional means, including diplomatic and, yes, military means. Now, this opens, obviously, a set of difficult questions, particularly in situations of urban armed conflicts. Difficult, yes, Mr. President, but not necessarily impossible. Defense of water by the civilian populations, by the affected populations themselves, is a legitimate form of self-defense and can be legitimately assisted by military means. Mr. Turk urged member states in the UN to send water and electric power specialists in the early stages of deployment of peace operations. They could help rapidly evaluate, repair, and rehabilitate water supply systems in order to restore or establish basic services to the affected populations. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. Interested in democracy but don't get involved enough because of rules preventing their participation and that needs to change, the UN Special Envoy for Youth said on Tuesday. Launching the Not Too Young to Run campaign, UN Envoy for Youth Ahmed Al-Hindawi said that in Nigeria, the voting age is 18, but people cannot stand for office until they're 30. That's a practice that's reflected widely around the world. Al-Hindawi told Daniel Johnson at the campaign launch at the UN in Geneva. First, we're taking this opportunity to say that the world has to pay more attention to youth engagement and political processes. Uh, it's a, a very alarming sign saying young people are not showing up in the election day and not voting. I think this raises uh, serious questions for all of us. Our take on that, that young people are interested in politics, but they don't find political processes accessible or appealing. And part of that is making sure that they are granting the right not only to vote, but also to run for public office. That's why today we are launching a global campaign that started in Nigeria and we are taking it to a global scale. It's called Not Too Young to Run uh, and it's available online at nottooyoungtorun.org which is uh, an open source campaign allowing young people to, to debate questions of uh, concerns about how to engage young people in political process and democracies and how to ensure this largest generation of young people uh, not only cast a vote but have a voice too. Tell me a bit about what are young people telling you in Nigeria? I, I visited Nigeria a few months ago and uh, I was struck when I learned that young people there, they, they put together this campaign and they are demanding to lowering the voting, the standing for office age of from 30, currently stands at 30. And that's what, what uh, young people in Nigeria are calling to lower. I mean, it's a country with over two-thirds of its population under 30 years old. And you can't just tell them that all what you can do is, is to, uh, to, to basically engage as voters, but not, uh, not also have the right to be represented. So I, uh, I endorse that campaign. We support it. In fact, I met with the vice president of Nigeria expressing my, my full support to that campaign and asking for more political leaders to support this effort. And uh, as we were, were exploring this uh, campaign, we, we found out that it resonates not only with Nigeria, in fact, it's a, a global trend where only 2% of parliamentarians under the age of 30 and half of the world's population is under the age of 30. So we, we get to do a better job in ensuring that this massive generation of young people who participate online, they engage in political issues day and night, they tweet, they post about things. And, and yet the formal political structure is just like, is, is not seeing them good enough to, to, to be part of it.
And what is it that uh, youth can actually bring to the political process? I'm glad that you're asking me what they bring, because usually some people think that youth participation, what we are giving to youth. I think that's my message very much is what you're asking me. is It's not really about like doing a favor to young people by listening to them. We're doing a favor to ourselves. The government's doing a favor to themselves. The institutions like the UN is doing a favor to itself by listening and opening up for young people. Young people, they bring uh, a sense of urgency for, for uh, uh, They bring uh, validation for, for policy and they bring fresh ideas, but also they bring the ingenuity and the creativity and the passion to do things in the ground. Uh, they are idealists, but also they are realists in their approach and pragmatic in the, the way, and particularly youth organizations <coughs> are here. So I think the human rights community will find a massive potential in engaging with young people as human rights defenders, as youth activists, uh, and uh, to, to really strengthen the human rights-based approach to development in general, and particularly when it comes to youth development. Uh, the next 14 years are critical to all of us for the SDGs and for all the ambitious agenda we adopted. Uh, I think uh, the question for human rights should be at the heart of this. So I think it's, it's great for the UN and Geneva, the Human Rights Council, to, to really benefit from uh, the amazing contribution that young people could offer and how all these uh, youth networks that have massive following base around the world will be able to get uh, young people aligned with the values of the United Nations and with the goals of the United Nations. That was UN Envoy for Youth, Ahmed Al-Khandawi, speaking there to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Authorities in South Sudan slammed the United Nations for saying government is responsible for the killing of more than 70 people in July this year. Authorities say the UN should also have blamed former Vice President Rek Machar, who also participated in the fighting that resulted in the loss of lives. James Manula has more. The Yuba government, led by President Salva Kiir, has been angered by the United Nations, which South Sudan says released a one-sided report on the fighting that resulted in the killing of more than 70 people in July this year in the capital Yuba and its outskirts. Yuba contends that it is unfortunate that the United Nations had the effrontery of blaming President Salva Kiir's government per se for the killings in July. Riek Machar's fighters, Juba argues, should also have been blamed because it was a party to the conflict that ignited the fighting. Reacting to the United Nations report that solely blames Juba for the killings, President Salva Kiir, the spokesman, Ateng Wekateng made it clear that the UN report does not augur well for the future of South Sudan Africa's newest nation. It will only be disadvantaging government and will even lead to the failure of the country. And if the country fails, then you and the United Nations has not achieved what it wants to achieve. It is they themselves who are actually nested. They have nested the agreement on resolution or conflict in the Republic of South Sudan and by evaluating whether the peace agreement is, is intact or not, they will acquaint themselves with the realities in the ground in a state of assumption. That will be the best way. That was Ateng Wekateng, spokesman for South Sudan President Salva Kiir, also adding his voice to the release of the United Nations report is South Sudan's representative at the UN, Joseph Majak Malok. Reading this document, our intention is not to contest this allegation, but simply warn the council and all concerned parties to get a better understanding of the root causes of the problem 
in order to develop appropriate remedies. South Sudan's representative at the United Nations, Joseph Majakamalok. The United Nations reported blaming South Sudan for being responsible for the killing of more than 70 people in July has prompted an independent Juba analyst, Francis Mading, to make the following remarks with the presence of the United Nations mission in Juba in mind. We know how the UN mission came on the eve of our independence. This mission uh, mandate rather was imposed on us, upon us, and because of the challenges of nationhood, which are normal to any nation, they now got emboldened to be able to renew the mandate unilaterally without the approval of our government and the people. So uh, the solution for South Sudan is for armies to be geared towards development rather than confrontation. It is a sure thing that if those 4,000 troops come in to South Sudan, say in a month's time, the likelihood of conflict persisting is enormous. My message to armies is to engage critical voices like myself instead of denouncing citizens who, are, who have a point to make, because that's what democracy is, instead of uh, denouncing them as people who are propagating against armies, which is not the case. That was Francis Mading, an independent analyst on South Sudan political issues. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival Langstrand Beach, Walfers Bay Namibia 23rd, 24th, 25th of December Music Festival with international and local artists Four-night accommodation packages and activities available at Computicket Travel Main events tickets available at Computicket 150 Namibian dollars, 150 rands and 130 pula Tickets are available at ShopRite and Checkers Get yours today VIP is 500 Namibian dollars, 500 rands or 380 pula. Hashtag Xmas in Namibia. Hashtag Harambe. Cultures of Southern Africa route is powered by Channel Africa. www.culturalfestival.net. Download the app today. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. The South African Parliament has rejected EFF Chief Whip Floyd Chavambo's draft resolution calling for the establishment of an ad hoc committee to investigate and identify all apartheid legislation that is still in existence. The call for such an ad hoc committee was sparked by the Riotous Assemblies Act of 1956, which is being used to prosecute EFF leader Julius Malema for incitement. This comes after Malema called on EFF supporters to occupy any vacant land more than two years ago. Mercedes Percent tells us more. When he opened the debate, Floyd Shibambu said there are still various pieces of what he calls petty laws that are still in existence. For instance, a law that was passed under apartheid in 1977 that says that you cannot watch movies on Sundays and public holidays is still in effect. You have got lots of petty laws. The Trespassing Act is still in existence. 
there are lots of things. There is a law that speaks about the prohibition of disguise acts. But the most important one is the Righteous Assemblies Act. A law that states in its objects that it aims to protect the Europeans against non-Europeans. And that is a law that is being utilized by the National Prosecutions Authority now to to prosecute the president and commander-in-chief of the Economic Freedom Fighters, is still in existence. Why are we there is because the ANC has neglected the important task of legislative reform and repeal of all legislations that existed prior 1994. Justice and Correctional Services Minister Michael Masuta, who accused the EFF of mischief and mistakenly referring to it as the Economic Freedom Front, told Shibambu that it was premature to call for an ad hoc committee when the EFF had already legally challenged the Rioters Assemblies Act. I will exercise restraint in my submissions here uh, this afternoon in view of the matter being subject to judicial determination before the North Gauteng High Court. Let me in the same breath state that it is therefore mischievous of the Economic Freedom Front to bring this matter up for debate in this august legislature when they have simultaneously sought to have it adjudicated upon by the courts. The DA supported the EFF. The DA's Michael Cardo shifted blame to the current government. 22 years after the inauguration of the first democratic parliament, we should have eradicated from our statute books all those apartheid-era laws that we used to crush opposition and stifle dissent. Yet, just the other day, an opposition leader was charged under the Riotous Assemblies Act of 1956. Jimmy Kruger, one of the most vicious apparatchiks of the apartheid state, used the same act to ban all public meetings in the wake of the 1976 Soweto uprising. While the NFP's Busi Somnwabe says people should guard against lawlessness, he gave the call for the establishment of an ad hoc committee the thumbs up. The NFP supports the formation of a multi-party ad hoc committee to do a review of all apartheid-era legislation with a firm mandate and a time frame to report back to Parliament on which of those laws are deemed to be in conflict with our constitution. Ndc Filtani from the UDM, who also supported the idea, says land dispossession was the main reason why most of the apartheid legislation came into effect. One of the most pertinent tenets of apartheid laws, following as they do on the dispossession of the indigenous peoples of South Africa, was to legislate for Europeans' biased ownership of land in South Africa, a state of affairs which sadly still persists even today. Given this background, it is now incumbent upon the states to make laws that repeal all apartheid laws that still appear in our statute books. Cope's Willie Madisha also made his voice heard. Let me start by indicating that uh, Cope supports the motion as here raised by Honorable Chibam. South Africa is a constitutional democracy. The constitutional democracy uh, which basically indicates that the land 
must be properly guided by it. IFP Chief Whip Narensing told the EFF that Parliament's Legal Services Division should be given a chance to identify all the pieces of apartheid legislation, as was agreed in the Programme Committee meeting last Thursday, where Shibambu was not present. And we do not believe that there is a need at this moment in time for an ad hoc committee to deal with this matter. What we would say that as a point of departure, we should allow the parliamentary law advisers sufficient time to identify and present to Parliament, through the relevant portfolio committee, the pieces of legislation that are in need of repeal and move the process forward from there. Jerome Marke from the ANC said there's already a panel appointed by President Jacob Zuma led by former President Khalima Mutlante that is reviewing legislation and therefore an ad hoc committee will be unnecessary. And that panel simply says if you have got a problem with whatever legislation you go to that panel. I think this is grandstanding. You can't bring that if you already, this government of the ANC has already noticed and it has taken steps to deal with the problem. After the debate, the EFF called for a division to allow voting to take place from the allocated seats of MPs. The majority of MPs voted against the motion. There were also abstentions as House Chairperson Cedric Froelich read the results. The result of the division is as follows. Those in favor, 86. Those against, 179. There's eight abstentions. And the motion as moved by the Honorable Shavambu is thus negative. It's not agreed to. And that was House Chairperson Cedric Frolick ending that report by Mercedes Besant in the South African Parliament. The Department of Home Affairs in South Africa has been accused of failing to respond to all attempts by Corruption Watch when alerting them of allegations of corruption against asylum seekers. In their statement, Corruption Watch further claims that the department also rejected the recommendations and proposals to practical solutions. To find out more on this, SAFM Sakina Kamwendo spoke to the Director General of the Department of Home Affairs in South Africa, Mkuseli Apleni. Mr. Apleni, your department has been accused of rejecting solutions, um, apparently didn't even bother to respond to attempts by Corruption Watch when alerting you to corruption against asylum seekers. Is this true? Well, uh, uh, Sakina, that can't be correct, but I will demonstrate about what we are doing as a department. I'm sure you are aware of our project called Visa Masina, and Visa is a vendor word, which means... uh, take out the rod. With that, uh, we already arrested about 21 officials at Maseru Bridge one day. We have arrested employees at, 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 at a paid bridge. All that was in media. We have arrested officials at, at, at uh, OR Tambo at head office because we are dealing with the issue of corruption. Furthermore, we established within the department a whole branch counter corruption in order to deal with these matters. Corruption Watch met with us and then we said to them, well, they wanted us to work together at Maramastat. Then we said to them, look, there are some revamp which were still working on it at Maramastat. One of those 
interventions, which as a department we won uh, from CETA, is a, a new automated appointment system that we said to them, look, we're just implementing these things for now. Once we have done and finished, that minister will be launching the revamp Maramba start here in, in the month of, of December. Once we have done that, then we can start now collaborating because what you are dealing with it as, as a corruption was is what we want. As home affairs, we deal with the matters of corruption. How can we say we don't want to work with someone who's going to assist us as if we are saying we are hit with corruption? But we are on every day working on this matter. So you are obviously then aware of these allegations of extortions, threats and bribery by officials against foreign nationals seeking asylum. And how, to what extent do you, would you say this problem has taken root within your department? No, we'll remember there was a first report by uh, lawyers for human rights which was dealing with this matter. We even said, Sakina, we are aware that the corruption started even before that asylum seeker arrived at a port of entry because these things are a syndicate. When a person leaves a country of origin, is already having a syndicate which will take that person through a port of entry up to come to our country and try and get documents illegally. That's why we know that there are even people are getting in marriages of convenience because all that is to get our documents. Hence, we change the law on, on, on that side and say, you get caught dealing with that. As a South African, you will get 15 years in jail. So all those things is what we are aware of. That's why we are changing now the way. You remember one of the things which we are doing, people are not understanding us. Why are we taking fingerprints at the port of entry when somebody comes in? We are saying no. A person will come in as an asylum seeker, go to the port of entry, tomorrow comes here now, is, is working. Tomorrow now is a married to somebody, but that person came as particular individuals. I know. Let's take a fingerprint, because that's what differentiates one person to the other. Once we have that, then it will help us. Secondly, as a department, we said, what is our answer to deal with this corrupt issue? is to modernize. That's why the Department of Home Affairs, is, we are trying to trade out the, uh, uh, the issuing of a green ID book because we know but that's why people, they do corrupt things. We are issuing a smart card. We change our passport and say, how you obtain our passport? It must be in an automated way. Once we have finished all those, then by day by day, we are eliminating chances of corruption in the department. And just finally, um, when you, uh, your relationship with Corruption Watch, do you see them and adding any value to the work that you are doing, complementing um, uh, this effort to root out the corruption? Again, we start with the citizen. That's why we are saying, here is our line which you call. Once you pick up that there is a corruption, we want that citizen to report. How much more now if there is an organized structure which we cannot work with it? Because once now we are working with everyone, then the main aim is to push back 
the frontiers of corruption. Whether it's an individual, whether it's an NGO, whether it's a grouping, whatever, law enforcement agent, as as home affairs, we can't deal with this matter alone. And we are always understanding that there is a corrupter and a corruptee. So let's not be under the impression that only the official of home affairs will go. When you go to those uh, refugee centers, that people call them runners. The runners means that people are working within that, that grouping. That's why we said, if you don't have an appointment system, once people are standing there in the queue, the runners are in between them, corrupting, doing this and doing that. But no, let's have a system which must stop that. You do your own appointment, ethically, you don't have to interfere with anybody, but the minister will be doing a lot of what are the changes we are doing there so that people will see that we are trying to which we have done on the civic service already. And remember, on our permitting side as well, there were a lot of corruption, but once we automated that process and we are working with VFS, how people are submitting their applications, that reduces the possibilities of corruption. And that was Mkuseli Apeleni, Director General of the Department of Home Affairs in South Africa, speaking to SAFM Sakina Kamwendo. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you in the headlines. Armed groups in the Central African Republic has a have been urged to stop fighting following clashes in Bri on the east of the country. Prosecutors at the International Criminal Court will probe the trafficking of migrants out of Libya to see if there's evidence of war crimes. And American artist Dante Terrell Smith, commonly known as Mars Diff, has left South Africa on a valid American passport after apologizing to the country for contravening immigration acts. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And Malawi's President Peter Mutarika says the country will not need any donor budgetary aid. Mutarika said this during the national address monitored on public broadcaster NBC. Mutarika underscored that having survived without aid in the recent years, he sees no need to depend on budgetary aid. Fiscal pressures intensified in the 2014-2015 fiscal year because of shortfalls in external financing due to the continued suspension of budgetary support, lower domestic revenue and expenditure overruns. George Mango reports from Blantyre. Malawi will use its local resources to run the country, according to President Peter Mutarika. He added that dependency on budgetary aid is a watershed in Malawi's history and other beginning for the country. Donors used to contribute at least 30% towards the budget until the public plunder of resources called Cashgate in 2013 when public officers siphoned money into their personal pockets. This led to the suspension of 150 million US dollar aid to Malawi by the disbanded group known as Common Approach to Budgetary Support CABS. Currently, donors support local organizations directly without involving government. But a development expert from the University of Malawi, UNIMA, 
Sen Zuka has expressed doubt over President Peter Mtarika's sentiments that the country would no longer need donor vitally aid in view of the continued dependence on local resources. The current situation uh, is that uh, government expects that uh, it is going to learn a budget without uh, a budgetary support from the reformed partners. Uh, this is uh, almost uh, non-practical because the taxes uh, in Malawi are coming from the middle class people. And this, this group is being taxed heavily to the extent that they, they are not able to support economic growth. They are not able to save and they are not able to venture into, into other development. So the situation is pathetic and I don't think that this is going to take the economy anywhere. But the other question that I did put to him was about the future of Malawi and then what steps the government should take. Zuka again. What needs to be done is that uh, government should control expenditure. I think there is uh, a lot of uh, areas where government need to reduce expenditure. That is not necessary. And uh, if government is able to, re- to save some resources from uh, other areas, then it can channel those areas to provision of uh, social services. But I think in the long term, government should think, be thinking about uh, uh, changing the whole philosophy about how it is learning the economy. I think for a long time, I think government uh, uh, has trusted so much that the economy is going to uh, move with the private sector. I, to, uh, my take is that I think the economy of Malawi needs that government should uh, invest, uh, make, make deliberate plans to invest in the economy. And this requires that uh, I think most of the loans that government is taking uh, is going towards uh, 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 building or construction of, of certain infrastructure that uh, is important. But I think it is important government should identify a potential area to invest massively. So that is my take. I think the whole philosophy of the way government runs the economy needs to change. But Mutarika said consequently that public service delivery was affected, especially in a number of key sectors including agriculture, health, education, among others. Still more, it is his hope that things are going to change for the better, minus donor bachelor aid. However, Malawians will be able to judge him by what he has said. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. United Nations food agencies are calling for urgent action to address southern Madagascar's worsening food insecurity. Farmers in southern Madagascar hit by three years of devastating drought urgently need more support so they can plant crop in time for the December and January planting seasons. The lack of sufficient rains have brought about significant declines in the production of maize, cassava and rice in the south of the island earlier this year. For more on this, Khumuzuma Pulane spoke to David Orr from the UN World Food Programme Southern Africa office. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, as you know, we've had two years of consecutive drought across southern Africa, resulting in poor or failed harvests in in most of the region. Madagascar has been, in fact, hit by three years of consecutive drought, and the south of the island is is particularly badly affected, resulting in uh, huge numbers of people who are food insecure. And that basically means that they don't have regular access to food. They just don't know where their next meal is coming from in many cases. 
It is estimated that about 67 million will be needed for food aid as well as farming support for the next upcoming plantation season. Will this be able to be accumulated and if not, what are the implications thereof? Well, we have a partnership with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. In fact, we're together looking for 67 million to keep our operations going from now up until the next harvest in March, April. And in particular, we have a joint operations which involve the distribution of seeds and cuttings for farmers in the south starting next month. The World Food Program has already started food and cash assistance activities in the south of the island to support food insecure people and we will be providing complementary rations to the same farmers who are receiving seeds and cuttings so that basically so that they don't eat these seeds that's what happens that farmers are so desperate they've been driven to desperate measures by hunger and in extreme cases they they have in the past actually eaten their seeds because they've had nothing else to sustain themselves so so the so the whole point of these complementary rations to the farming families is that they do manage to sow their seeds this is of course the planting season between now and january a very crucial period if they can plant their seeds grow their crops and that's supposing that we do get some good some good rains but the forecast is is promising um, then they will be better able to survive next year. Insufficient rain not only uh, brings about um, a decline in production of crops, but also rising food prices. Have the citizens of Madagascar adopted any kind of coping mechanisms or survival strategies in these tough times? And, and what is the government of, of that country doing to assist um, in that regard? Well, of course, they do have survival strategies or coping mechanisms, as we sometimes call them. I mean, I was there uh, quite recently, and a lot of people have been driven driven to eating the fruit of the red cactus, which grows along the roadside. And that's really because they have nothing else to survive on. The situation has got so bad that, in fact, even babies are being being fed red red cactus fruit. Um, there literally is very little else for many families there. They have to walk for huge distances, often hours, just to get some water. That's a real problem. You know, unless they can plant and grow some food, they're in a very, very bad situation. As you say, prices have also been have been rising. So it's a whole combination of factors. The south is an arid area at the best of times. It's very remote. It's got very poor infrastructure the roads are just terrible long distances to travel to the markets very little in the markets so the whole combination of factors is is giving rise to, to a very worrisome situation there at the moment that was david or communications officer for un world food program southern africa office speaking to humutumo pulani Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Space technology is contributing to the reconstruction of one of the world's most iconic heritage sites, Timbuktu in northern Mali. 
That's according to an information management specialist with the UN Development Programme, Bertrand Fort. He said UNDP is helping to rebuild the centuries-old city, which was destroyed by conflict over the past few years. The agency is using satellite imagery to monitor the reconstruction and its impact on people living there. Fraught is in Dubai this week for the first high-level forum on space as a driver for socio-economic sustainable development organized by the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs and the United Arab Emirates. He told Diane Penn why one satellite map beats a multi-page report. Space technologies are fantastic. They have a great impact in terms of uh, visibility, in terms of uh, cooperation, of uh, planning and also of communication. We use uh, space technologies in uh, two ways. First for communication. Our country offices use uh, satellite uh, communications when, uh, when they cannot do, uh, do anything else. Uh, we also provide uh, satellite communication to remote populations, uh, for example, uh, internet connectivity to some schools or to some uh, some youth programs or to some uh, villages which are in a, in a difficult situation and we could not, uh, could not have uh, internet uh, otherwise. And second subject uh, is uh, imagery and uh, analysis of imagery. And this is changing the way we monitor and we plan our projects. Uh, when we have a map and uh, satellite images uh, on top of the map, everything becomes much more clear. <laughs> And I wonder if you can give us an example of that um, technology and function in practice. Yes, uh, in uh, Mali, uh, in northern Mali, you know, it's a region uh, with uh, nice cities like uh, Timbuktu, Mopti, Gao, Kidal, where um, you cannot go anymore without uh, being accompanied by, uh, by the MINUSMA. And for people who may not be familiar with, first of all, those cities, there may be people who may not know the significance of those cities and why you can't go there without MINUSMA, which is the UN's mission in Mali. Uh, there was a war in Mali in uh, 2012 to 2013, and uh, effectively Timbuktu is a, is a treasure of the planet. Uh, and there are people living in, in all those cities. So we are rebuilding the infrastructure after they have been uh, destroyed by the, uh, by the terrorists um, d- during the war. So we are mandated to rebuild uh, the public infrastructures in, in these cities. And uh, uh, in Timbuktu, we have used a satellite map to, uh, to, to monitor the reconstruction, how did it improve and where we are today. So today we can, uh, we can have a nice map of uh, Timbuktu with some images of uh, what we did. Uh, and the impacts also of what we did, we can, we can see now some uh, markets which have uh, reappeared around the, around the public infrastructure that, uh, that were rebuilt. We can see also what uh, remains to be done. That was Bertrand Fraught, Information Management Specialist with the UN Development Programme, speaking to Penn. And I'm Tabi Solohoku with an economics update. Good morning. 
South Africa's government has delayed its nuclear power expansion plans, although state uh, energy utility ESCOM said the country should stick to its original plan of bringing a new plant online by 2025. South Africa has the continent's only nuclear power station and is seeking to expand its nuclear wind, solar and power capacity in the coming decades, as electricity output barely meets demand. The high unemployment rate in South Africa continues to increase, with the official number increasing 27.1% in the third quarter from 26.6% recorded in the second quarter. This is the highest unemployment figure since 2003. Releasing the results of the Labour Force Survey for the third quarter, statistician Padilo Hotla said there was a need to identify economic sectors that will help create jobs. And current unemployment rate is 27.1, as you see, and uh, that is uh, 13.1 percentage points above what the NDP suggests it should be, around 14%. And of course, uh, if we project forward, uh, the percentage points that have to be covered in the space remaining between now and 2030 is 21.1 percentage points. Oil firms, including China's Sanopec, have expressed interest in developing Uganda's planned oil refinery. An investor for the project will be selected by February 2017. The East African country, which discovered oil fields in 2006 but has yet to start production, began trying to secure a private investor for the project nearly two years ago. Energy and Mineral Development Minister Irene Moloni told an oil conference in the capital Kampala that some new firms had expressed interest in the project and that fresh talks were underway. The Botswana Stock Exchange has lifted the suspension of stockbrokers Botswana Limited after getting satisfied that all the requirements for trading have been met. SBB, which is one of the country's oldest and leading brokerage firms, was suspended in August after being found to have breached the boss's rules and regulations. Botswana Stock Exchange says the suspension was lifted upon being satisfied that all the compliance issues so far as the BSE and the Central Securities Deposit of Botswana were met. Africa's biggest hotels and gambling operator, Togosan, says half-year profit was flat and expects the trading conditions to remain under pressure. The company, which also operates hotels in Nigeria, Kenya and Mozambique, says adjusted herding headlines uh, per share were unchanged at 88 South African cents in the six months to end September. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa. We are the voice of the African Renaissance. And up next is Fila Nwati with the sport update. But for now, the US dollar trades at 14.13 in South Africa, 10.68 in Botswana, 9.74 in Zambia, 8.0 British pound, 9.4 euro, gold $1,213, platinum $940 an ounce, brand crude oil $49.05 a barrel. A sports update up next with Figle Lingwati.
And in our sports update, Lulu, South African CAF Champions side, Mamelodi Sundowns coach Piso Musimane has conceded that he doesn't know much about the teams his team will face in the 13th edition of the FIFA Club World Cup from the 8th until the 18th of December in the Japan city of Yokohama and Osaka. The Brazilians, as Mamelodi Sundowns is affectionately known, will slug it out against the club champions from other six confederations and national league champions from the host Japan after winning the CAF Champions League last month. Pizzo Musimani's team will play against either the Japanese league winner still to be determined or Auckland City from the New Zealand in the quarterfinals on the 11th of December in Osaka. He says a team from Oceania can be tricky. No, I don't know much. I don't know much. I haven't started yet. Um, following the Japanese, that uh, I think in a, a week or two, a week, I think that they, they will be a decider. Uh, that's what I know. And uh, I see Auckland City in, in, New Z- in New Zealand. They've been playing. They've been winning games. They've signed two new players. That they had them and they loaned them out. They went out for trials in the UK and all that, and they came back. So I don't know much, but uh, I know Australian football, I know New Zealand football is, is like you're playing American football. It's, it's direct, it's the same, it's, it's straightforward. Musiman is also wary of the Asian team, saying they are diligent and technically gifted. He also touched on the Colombian's Atletico Nacional, where his lethal striker, Leonardo Castro, hails from. And you know the Asians, if you play the Japanese, you know also the mental strength with, with the Asian people, they work hard and they don't give up. And the technique is very good in Japan. So that's, that's what else you, you know, you know international from uh, Colombia. Uh, you just look at Castro, you, you know the South Americans, you know the level. So you basically know almost what you expect and you never know. You know, maybe you can have a David and Goliath story. And have fun with Real Madrid, hopefully. Why not? Yeah, anything's possible. And in athletics, the Kenyan state has terminated the doping case against Italian athletics agent Federico Orosa even before the trial started. A prosecutor, Mary Wangele, says the director of public prosecution had given a direction that the case be withdrawn under Section 87A of the Criminal Procedure Code. Rosa was also accused of a similar conspiracy that led to Rita Jeb 2 being banned athletics from athletics for two years. Rosa says he's happy with the decision. I'm very happy and relaxed finally after five incredible months of nightmare and without knowing what, what was going on and why it was going on. Uh, now I need to relax completely and then plan for the Discovery Kenya for next year and then I will decide with my lawyers what I have to do to the embassy help a lot and I have to thank my ambassador and all the people from the embassy they always support me. I have to to thanks all the friends like Mr. Lechonia, former major of Eldred, that always support me and help me in every moment. And the Russian president Vladimir Putin signed a law that introduces prison terms for coaches and medical staff who coerce athletes into using banned performance enhancing drugs. The law comes into force as Russia is working to clean up its image that's tarnished by evidence of state-sponsored doping that saw its athletics team and entire Paralympic squad excluded from the Rio Games. The legislation calls for a one-year jail term for officials who force a minor to dope or resort to violence and threats to make an athlete dope. Out of Sport News, this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine the Sawa armed groups increasingly use water as a weapon of war South Sudan government lashes out at the United Nations and South Africa's opposition accuses the ruling ANC of defending apartheid laws That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today from myself Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsu Ramagata and Tutongoveni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. is Mikasa with a song titled Movie Star. I met a pretty little girl in Uganda. She made my eyes wonder. It's crazy what you know it's me. She's striking the boy like it's a thunder. Her beauty is a power. So I'm being some chemistry.
Africa, my life, 